Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. Today's scripture is 2 Peter 2, 1 to 10a. But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago and their destruction will not be delayed. For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness, where they are being held until the day of judgment. And God did not spare the ancient world, except for Noah and the seven others in his family, nor warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. He is especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desire and who despise authority. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Well, thank you, Robert. Really appreciate you reading that for us. And it's, uh, can everybody hear me? Can you give me a thumbs up? Great. Okay. All right. Well, good. Um, well, today we are continuing our series on two Peter. Uh, but before I begin, I need to give you a bit of a warning that today's text takes us into some subject matter that may not be appropriate for children. So if you've got a child in the room, it may be best for you to pause this and watch later or be ready to mute if there's something that you don't want them to hear. Uh, But as I said, we're doing a deep dive as a church into the book of 2 Peter. And last week we began to look at chapter 2, which is all about false teachers. And one of the points Peter makes is that false teachers are inevitable. Uh, They've been present in every era of the church. And in one sense, false teachers are like a virus that keeps mutating and emerging in slightly different forms um, throughout church history. And one of the reasons Peter is writing this chapter is to help us build up an immunity to uh, to false teachers uh, by warning us about them 
And in doing this, Peter is just, he's reiterating the warning that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and he said, you know, Jesus said it this way in, in uh, Matthew 7:15. he said, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. So Jesus warned us about the false prophets or the false teachers who would inevitably come. And in chapter two of his letter, Peter reiterates that warning. And in the first three verses, which we looked at last week, Peter mentions five characteristics of a false teacher. And they're men or women who are deceptive or who teach destructive heresies or are sexually immoral or they can have large followings. And he also explains that they are greedy. Now, those are all markers of a false teacher. But then after those opening three verses, in the passage that we're going to look at today, we find this big rabbit trail that Peter takes to elaborate on the certain judgment that awaits unrepentant false teachers. So he starts the last half of verse three with this statement. He says, God condemned them, false teachers, long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. In other words, God has already made it clear that he condemns false teachers, and they face certain judgment for the serious sin of misleading and corrupting the church. And then to, to underscore his argument, he goes off on a rabbit trail in which he cites three well-known stories of God's judgment that occur in the Old Testament. He talks about the stories of the rebellious angels, the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, now these stories would have been well-known and understood by Peter's first-century readers, which is why he doesn't go into much detail about them. He just kind of reminds them of these examples. But since many of us are not as familiar with these stories, I, I want to take some time this morning to look at each one of them so we don't miss the point that Peter is making here. So starting in verse 4, Peter uh, refers to the story of the rebellious angels. And he writes this, he says, For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell, in gloomy pits of darkness, where they are being held until the day of judgment. Now, notice a few things about this. First of all, I mean, this, this might seem obvious to you, but Peter assumes that angels exist. You know, I, I'm not sure most people today believe in angels. I mean, they're often depicted in our culture like this. You know, these, these cute babies with wings that hang out on clouds and just kind of think whatever they're thinking about there. I, I, I don't know. But, but that's not what angels are, how angels are depicted in the Bible at all. Angels are spiritual beings who act on God's behalf on the earth. And since, and, and every time someone encounters an undisguised angel in the Bible, uh, they're not seeing a cute little baby with wings. They're seeing a mighty and majestic creature. And they're almost always just on their face in terror. In fact, the, the first thing that most angels have to say to people is do not be afraid. So Peter assumes angels exist. And, and, and for good reason, because in Acts 12, we're told of an occasion when Peter himself encountered an angel. It, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. 
And um, it, it, the context is that Peter had been arrested during a surge in persecution in Jerusalem. And it says this, it says, the night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly, there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, quick, get up, and the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel told him, Get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel. But all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street and then the angel suddenly left him. <laughs> I love that. Poof, the angel's gone. So sometimes it seems that, that angels are visible to us, but most of the time they're not. And they seem to be the ones that determine when we can and cannot see them. But my point here is that in our culture, even though our culture may be skeptical about the existence of angels, Peter was not. I mean, he had experienced angels powerfully for himself. So he knows they're real. He knows how powerful and magnificent they are, which is why this story, the story of the rebellious angels um, and about God judging some of them and throwing them into hell is such a big deal to Peter. You know, but what is the story about? You know, why would God do such a thing? Now, there's some debate about what this story is actually referring to. It could be one of two things. Um, some people think this is referring to the pre-creation angelic rebellion that is referred to and hinted at in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And it seems that what happened is that Satan's pride induced him to lead an angelic rebellion against God. And one third of the angels sided with him, but they were defeated and cast out of heaven. So that could be what Peter's referring to here. But others think, and, and what I believe personally, is that this is referring to this mysterious story that we read in Genesis chapter 6, where it seems that the angels were guilty of seducing mortal women. Now, the result of this unsanctioned union between angels and humans was, was a race of giants. The, the Bible calls them the Nephilim. And, and through them, such wickedness came upon the earth that God had to send the flood. And the thinking is that that it was this intermingling of, of angels and humans that somehow corrupted and altered the genetic code in humanity, producing creatures that God didn't intend. So God punished the angels for their sin by throwing them into hell, where they remain until the final day of judgment. Now, this is a, a strange story. It happened very early in human history, but Peter's point here is that if God was swift to condemn these angels, these, you know, as glorious and as great as angels are, if, if he was swift to condemn them for their sin, how much more would he be willing to condemn false teachers for their attempts to corrupt and pervert the church through their destructive teachings? Secondly, he refers to the flood. Now, he writes this about it. He says, And God did not spare the ancient world, 
except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Now, these two stories, the stories of the re rebellious angels and the flood, uh, come one after another in Genesis. They're, they're tied together in Genesis, and Peter ties them together here. But, but I want to look at how Genesis describes the reason behind the flood, because it helps us understand why God had to take this drastic step. And it says this in Genesis 6, that the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I've created from the face of the earth. Now, obviously, there's a lot to say about this, but in order to put this into some sort of context we can understand, Imagine the Nazi atrocities in World War II going unchecked for centuries. The evil that was happening on the earth at this time was so prevalent, so horrible, that it was beyond retrieval. I mean, there, there was no hope of rehabilitation. The, the only hope left, the only option left was complete destruction. But to do this, it just, it says there, it broke God's heart. And it's really interesting that this is the first mention of God's heart in the Bible. And God was brokenhearted by how far humanity had fallen and what it now required him to do. I imagine it would be something like parents who've discovered their child is a mass murderer. I mean, how, what would they feel? They, they would be brokenhearted too. They'd be brokenhearted for the victims. They'd be brokenhearted for their own child. And yet they would know that their child should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. I think that's a, a picture of how God was feeling in this, in this time. So when it was clear that, that evil had become so prevalent that it was beyond retrieval, God instructed the only remaining righteous family, the family of Noah, to build a boat in which they and representatives of every creature on earth would shelter from the coming flood. And so that's what they did. And again, Peter's point here is that if God was willing to release judgment on the human race at the flood, how much more would he be willing to condemn a few false teachers for their attempts to corrupt and pervert the church through their destructive teachings? Now, finally, he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he writes about it this way. He says, later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. Now, these two cities were infamous for their rampant sexual immorality. And as an example of what was happening, Genesis 19 tells us an incredibly grim story of a gang of men who came to Lot's house one night and demanded that two of his male guests be sent out for them to gang rape. Not only was this depraved, 
but it was also a violation of the near sacred laws of hospitality in the Middle East where guests are to be treated with the utmost care and respect. And again, it seems that these towns, they'd gone past the point of no return and the only option remaining for God was their complete destruction. And so it says that after Lot and his family left the area, fire and burning sulfur rained down from the sky and completely destroyed them. And again, Peter's point here is that if God was willing to release judgment on these corrupt cities, how much more would he be willing to condemn false teachers for their attempts to corrupt and pervert the church through their perverse lifestyles and teachings? Now, these grim stories serve as a warning to the false teachers and to those who follow them, you know, that their judgment is certain unless they repent. But you, you might be wondering as you're listening to all this, what do these stories have to do with me? I mean, the stories are interesting, but why does Peter bring them up? I mean, isn't it enough to say, like he did in verse three, that God will condemn these false teachers for their actions? Is this just a, a bad rabbit trail that has nothing to do with the main point? Actually, I think he's got a very good purpose for telling us these stories. And it's, it's not just about the fact that God will condemn false teachers. These stories actually serve to give hope to the sincere, to give hope to sincere Christians. In fact, um, I think there are two reassuring truths to take from this account. First of all, I think we can take a reassurance by the fact that God knows how to rescue the righteous. In fact, look at the way that he concludes these three stories in verse nine. He writes, so you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. This is actually Peter's main point in bringing up these stories. This is how he concludes all these stories is, is he's saying, so you see, God knows how to rescue. He's saying, yes, these false teachers will certainly be punished, but, but God knows how to rescue his people. And if we go back through those stories, Peter takes, take, we can see that Peter takes pains to point out two examples of God rescuing the righteous from suffering, uh, from suffering the same fate as everyone else. He says that, that God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. And then he tells us that God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a, a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. So Peter's point to his readers is, if you choose to follow God rather than the world, if you choose to obey him and follow his ways rather than the world's ways, he will rescue you from the world's fate. Of course, the primary way he's done this is through Jesus, who through his death on the cross has rescued us from divine judgment that we all deserve. By trusting in him, we no longer have to fear judgment or hell. And that's something that we should rejoice in every day. So, so in many ways, God has already rescued us if you are a follower of Jesus this morning. But I think we can expect to see God's deliverance in this life as well. I mean, think about how God intervened in each of these two examples. In Noah's case, God spoke to Noah and warned him of the coming flood. He instructed him how to build a boat. He brought all the animals to him. He protected him from those animals who were no doubt really, some of them really dangerous uh, while they were on the boat. And, and, and then he even shut the door of the ark 
behind Noah when the flood began. Uh, he protected Noah and his family during the flood itself. And then he brought them safely to land again and then helped them. Uh, he blessed them as they repopulated the earth. And in Lot's case, God did something very similar. You know, he warned him about the coming destruction of the city by sending two angels who urged him to get out of the city. And when this perverse gang of men came to their house, those angels, they, they protected Lot and his family by causing this gang to suddenly go blind. And, and, and then they got them out of the city before this destruction began. And, and I think what this is showing us is that God, you know, just as God cares for the sparrow, like Jesus said, in the midst of everything else that's going on in the world, God will make a way of escape for the righteous. And, and that way of escape, that rescue may be narrow. It, it may involve leaving behind things that you wouldn't have chosen to leave behind, but we can be certain that God can and will deliver the righteous in the midst of divine judgment. I think that's really reassuring for us as Jesus followers. But there's a second point that I find really reassuring for us living now in the 21st century. And it's this, no matter how bad things get, we never have to despair. It's easy to despair in these days. You know, I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I find reading the news to be pretty depressing most of the time. It's clear that Christian beliefs and values are now in the minority in this nation, and, and our culture is steadily working to eliminate the voice of faithful Christians from our national discourse. And, and there's a new sexual orthodoxy that has emerged, which has taken what was unthinkable only a few decades ago and made it unquestionable today. So, so it's easy to feel outnumbered. It's easy to feel intimidated. It's easy to despair. But I like what the author, uh, Richard John Newhouse said. He, he writes, Christians have not the right to despair for despair is a sin. And we have not the reason to despair quite simply because Christ is risen. So church, we don't have to despair. There is always hope. And if we think again over those three stories that Peter mentions, in all of them, there was reason to believe that all hope was lost, you know, but in each instance, God dramatically intervened to subvert the growing evil and to rescue those who followed him. In each story, you know, they show us that we can be hopeful even when we're facing demonic opposition. I mean, think of the story of the angel, the, the rebellious angels. I mean, God intervened even when there was a supernatural evil that was corrupting the human race. And, and this is encouraging for us because no matter how dark things get, no matter what demonic forces are unleashed on the earth, we don't have to despair. God is in control. He's still on his throne. You know, sometimes I think we tend to look at the devil and his demons and, and see them as sort of the opposite of God and the angels and they're, that, God is the yin and the, the devil is the yang, you know, but that's not a biblical view of it. God is infinitely more powerful than anything the enemy can throw at him. You know, for example, when you read the gospels, every time Jesus exercises a demon from someone, it's, it's not a struggle for him. The demons are begging for mercy the moment Jesus steps on the scene. So God is vastly more powerful than anything the devil or his demons 
have to have to have to offer. So if you're facing spiritual warfare right now, if things are feeling dark for you, know that you don't have to despair. God can easily overcome the darkness and he will provide a way of escape for you, even in the midst of spiritual warfare. Secondly, we don't have to despair even when we're outnumbered. I mean, with the story of Noah, only one righteous family remained on the earth. The rest of the world apparently had completely abandoned God. I mean, talk about being outnumbered and feeling in the minority. Uh, Noah and his family were literally the only people that we know about that were following God on the earth. It's easy to feel confident when you have numbers on your side, but over and over again, the Bible shows us that we don't need numbers on our side. All we need is God on our side. Finally, we never have to despair even when godlessness and immorality is normal. I mean, Lot was surrounded by a culture that had normalized sexual immorality. And it says that Lot was sick of it, that he, that he saw the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him and was tormented in his soul by the wickedness that he saw and heard day after day. But even though that culture had completely turned from God and embraced immorality, God was still able to rescue the righteous while putting an end to the immorality of those who refused to repent. So church, just to wrap up today, I think we can take courage from these stories that, that while it seems like things are sliding into darkness in our culture, and while, while you might feel outnumbered uh, as, we, you know, as a believer in Jesus, and, and, and as you look around and see godlessness and immorality on the rise, I want you to remember that God is still on his throne, that Christ is risen, that he knows how to rescue the righteous, and in the end, God will triumph. So don't despair, church. You know, as the psalmist said, put your hope in God, for you will praise him again. Let me pray for you as we wrap up. Father, thank you that in you we have hope. And because of you, we don't ever have to despair. We are so grateful that you know how to rescue us, how to rescue your people. And we thank you, Lord, that you have rescued us from the judgment that we face through your death on the cross. And so we, we bring to you our fears this morning. We bring to you our anxieties. We bring to you the temptation to despair uh, when we look at what's unfolding in our culture around us. But, and we thank you that you are on the throne today. And so, Lord, we, put to choose, we, we, we choose to put our hope and our trust in you to not despair, but to believe and trust in, in your goodness in your protection, and your faithfulness in our lives. Lord, help us where we're discouraged today. Help us where we're feeling hopeless today and restore our hope in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.